Welcome to Idaho Speaks, the place to learn about candidates and issues important to Idaho. My name is Ed, and I created this channel to overcome the media bias that plagues our communities and our state. When presented all the information, I believe you, the voter, will make the best decision for our future. At Idaho Speaks, we will give you the side of the story being hidden by mainstream media and big tech giants. My name is David Worley, and I'm the Southeast Idaho interviewer for the Idaho Speaks team. Our goal is to give you, the voter, as much access as possible to the field of state and local candidates around Idaho. Ed and I both do interviews, so if you as a candidate find yourself in a situation where you need to speak directly to the voters and are having trouble getting through the mainstream media, please reach out and we will do our best to get you on the program. We want to give Republican and conservative candidates a platform to communicate their ideas in a long-form format so that you, the voter, has the best information available to make your choice on election day. Idaho Speaks, your issues, your candidates, your state. With us today, we have Michael Law, who's running for the Idaho House of Representatives in District 23, Seat A. Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. Well, hey, this is the first time we've had you on the Idaho Speaks podcast. So we're just going to kind of do an introductory interview, get to know you and know about your campaign. So let's start off with... Who are you and why are you running for office? Well, uh, um, my name is Michael Law, obviously. Uh, I born and raised here in Idaho, uh, actually in uh, Cuna, which is uh, in uh, southern Ada County, uh, which, in, uh, which is exactly where the district is, southern Ada County, southern part of Canyon County, and all of Waihee County. So we take up the southwestern corner of Idaho. Uh, I grew up here. Uh, Started off uh, my first job milking uh, cows, uh, feeding cows, uh, doing that sort of thing. So I've learned the value of hard work when I was young as a teenager in high school. Graduated from uh, CUNA. Uh, later, I went on to uh, get a, my bachelor's degree uh, from Boise State University uh, with a secondary education emphasis. So my intent was to uh, teach U.S. history and government in high school, however, uh, I found that uh, quite difficult to even get my foot in the door, especially given uh, my political leanings. Uh, and I, from there, I went on to get my master's from American Public University, and that was also in political science with uh, an American government and U.S. history uh, emphasis. Uh, and from that, uh, uh, I went on and used not only just use that, but I, from my education, I found that it was very uh, limited in how much we knew, for example, about the Declaration of Independence itself. Um, so I have uh, written a book that came out, uh, published three years ago uh, in uh, throughout the U.S., you can find it on Amazon and anywhere, uh, called The Founders' Revolution, The Forgotten History and Principles of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, doing that, uh, I go through it paragraph by paragraph, line by line, explaining uh, everything in the, doc in the Declaration of Independence and why they put those things in. Anyway, uh, so I've done that, uh, worked as a... Uh, political analyst for Fox News Radio for a couple of years, uh, up until about a year ago, uh, and found a time for me to move on from there. So I've uh, done a number of things. Uh, I've been married for 
this year will be uh, year number 30 with uh, three children and one uh, beautiful granddaughter who's about two and a half right now. Uh, and I currently, I work as a project manager for an online translation service. Uh, thankfully, I'm not doing any of the translating. I just manage the projects. Uh, and I've done numerous, uh, numerous things. I'm here in Idaho. Uh, spent a couple of years in uh, Florida as a Japanese uh, translator slash uh, tour guide, uh, which was quite interesting. Um, but uh, when times got hard, and this was a couple of decades ago, uh, I tend to move back here to Idaho. So did spend a couple of years, found out uh, uh, what that is uh, like in other states as well. And uh, just Idaho really is home. And of course, this is where family is, although my granddaughter and family lives in Canada right now. But uh, so, so I understand uh, you correctly. You say you speak Japanese then. Uh, yes, that is correct. How, how did you um, how did you not, pick up that language? Well, I served a uh, served as a missionary in Japan for a couple of years, and my wife is actually uh, Japanese. Um, got married uh, six months or so after getting home from uh, Japan. Um, she became a citizen about nine years ago herself, and it was interesting doing that because the uh, immigration service they don't see that very often with Japanese people. So uh, it was kind of a treat for them. And he had been doing it for 20 years, swearing in people, uh, uh, new citizens. And it was, it was his first in 20 years. So uh, it's really kind of rare there, but yeah, she's a citizen and, and we still speak a little bit at home, more her speaking and me hearing and responding in English. But yeah, that's a, we still, uh, I still do converse that way. Oh, that's pretty cool. Not a lot of people have uh, that language under their belt, so that's awesome. So uh, that's that's a that's a pretty extensive background. We're gonna we're gonna come back around to your book because I want to talk to you about that. But before we okay. uh, before we get back to there, so what motivated you to run? Well, uh, a number of things, of course, you know, but the book had a little bit to do with it, you know, as I started, as I was doing research and uh, not only in uh, knowing the, the lack of education with regards to declaration and the basic principles and foundations that are in this country and, but just watching, and it's been for a few years, watching how government uh, infringes on uh, the liberties and the rights of individuals. Uh, another thing to know about me is that I was on the CUNA school district uh, school board uh, for a term, not quite a complete term because I actually had to give that up uh, about a year early because I had to uh, get the transcript of my book to the publisher and I was just running out of time. So I had to find places to cut time so I could finish it. Anyway, uh, even as on a school board and watching how government spends money, how they could do things better, but yet not willing to, in some cases, uh, just drove me to this point. And especially the last couple of years uh, and watching how uh, government continues to trample the individual liberties, not seem to care too much about uh, the plight of citizens with regards to their 
financial uh, situations with regards to the over-regulations uh, the government continues to do just has driven me to that point. And especially the last two years, uh, I've seen too much of that. And I figured it is time to get my foot in the door there and do what I can as an individual to ensure that the rights and liberties of citizens are protected fully. So let's talk about the last couple of years. So you said that obviously, you know, there's been multiple threats to our to our rights and our freedoms over the past few years, but in the past couple you highlighted there that's been particularly, I guess, intense or different. What are the things that happened in the past couple of years you think have been particularly disturbing or or things that kind of motivate you to get in the race? Well, uh, just in the last couple of years, I mean, we can see starting in uh, in Idaho, unfortunately, was one of the first to be arresting uh, individuals for practicing their religion, for example. Um, people not allowed to uh, be able to go visit uh, family members, which you should be able to do anytime that uh, you, see, you see fit and that is safe for each individual and it was not left up to individuals uh people are have lost businesses because government shuts down businesses uh even here in idaho uh just too many things such as that that uh make me made me realize not not just realize but uh push me to the point that i I believe that something needed to be done. Something things still need to be doing. And a quick example um, is the you, you can look it up on Idaho.gov/agencies. There are 187 different agencies uh, that that the state of Idaho has, and that fits perfectly with one of the uh, things, one of the charges against King George that Thomas Jefferson uh, wrote in the Declaration of Independence, which is that he, meaning the king, has sent, has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. And we saw... Is this, doesn't that, that just, so every time I read that line in Declaration, that just perfectly describes both the federal bureaucracy, the state bureaucracy, even a lot of our local governments. Is that That is just, that language rings as true today as it did in 1776. Yeah, very much so, and even more so. And, and I cite in my book, in the case of the federal government, because that's what I mostly focused on, was that there was over 500 at the time, and this was three years ago, well, Technically, four years ago when I wrote it, and three years ago when it uh, when I finally got published, uh, that is the exact same thing. Uh, with 500 plus uh, agencies, it really uh, makes it difficult for anybody to be able to make a, a living just having to deal with the regulations, and then make a living because <laughs> they're taxing us out of house and home and in the state of Idaho, especially if they're taxing, they're taxing some people literally out of house and home and those out of house and home that falls upon local governments. So let's, let's talk about some specific policies that came out over the past couple of years. You mentioned the business lockdowns and the restrictions on religious liberty. And I think that those, those were universally, you know, decried by 
I think the bulk of Idaho citizens, um, but they're not, obviously our legislators feel differently, but let's talk about specifically the mask and vaccine mandates. What are your thoughts on those types of mandates and what is the role of government with regard to those things? Uh, totally against uh, vaccine mandates and mask mandates. And here's, and there's a couple of reasons for that. First is simply uh, that government is only bestowed with authority. And according to the U S constitution says we, the people or do ordain and establish this constitution. The same thing really with Idaho is that we, the people are the people with the power and we gave some of that power to government obviously not all of it but some of that power to government therefore my way of thinking is and it's actually the the founders way of thinking uh, framers way of thinking is that only those powers that the people as an individual have can they grant government now, i can't as an individual force you uh, to wear a mask or force you to get a vaccine. That would be a violation of your right as an individual. And therefore, I cannot have my representative government to do the same thing. So in that sense, with authority, looking at authority, they don't have any authority to trample those the rights of another individual, even on my behalf, uh, which is what you have is how you have to look at it is when government acts they're doing it at the behest you know of the rest of the citizens which those rest of the citizens must have that individual power in and of themselves which they do not with regards to this now if you look at it as a a different legal point of view masks and vaccines uh start with masks those are medical devices or medical equipment and uh, with the uh, association of of medical malpractice lawyers you can look it up anytime that a medical device or any kind of medical treatment is thrust on somebody they have the, not thrust necessarily but required by a doctor compelled the doctor has to go through and know the person's history know the individuals uh what the lab results were order lab results and of course they have to have a medical uh license and none of that applies to medical uh, to, to mass and the same thing can be said for vaccines you have to know the history and all of that and otherwise it's medical malpractice and people could actually be suing for that because it's medical mal malpractice so there's a lot to unpack there but a couple of points i want to bring out um, first off before we go any further it, do you go by michael or mike I go by either, and I've actually been called all kinds of things. So, <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. Well, Michael, I'm glad that you brought up your first point there. I just want to make sure our listeners hear this again. It, it that first point, you cannot delegate to government a power that you yourself do not have. That that is just a, something that is not brought up very much anymore. And all the time we see the government do things. And if you try to do them as an individual, you would get absolutely, you know, you know, crushed. And yeah, that, that makes, that makes, that makes sense. 
And I think that we need to highlight that and bring that back into the general discussion that, yes, we the people create the government, we grant the government power, but we can't grant them rights and powers that we ourselves do not possess. If I can't force you to get a vaccine, then the government shouldn't be able to force me to do it either. And uh, and it doesn't just apply to the vaccines and, and uh, the masks. I mean, that is how I'm going to be asking with regards to every bill. Do I, as an individual, have a right to do that to my fellow citizen if government did not, did not exist? Am I trampling on their right? And if I can't answer... If I can't answer in such a way that I say, "Yeah, I can do that," uh, then then I cannot uh, support that bill simply because uh, we have already way too much of that. So my intent is to roll a lot of those things back. But that is how we should be asking with regards to every bill that comes across as legislators or anything else for that matter. Does government have that authority? Do I? Can I do that? So business license, as an example, and we don't we don't talk necessarily a lot about that. Uh, why do I need to go get permission to run my business so I can make to earn a living, uh, you know, 20, 30 bucks, however, however small it might mean. Well, also a lot of the licensing for, you know, I don't know why you have to permission from the state to be a barber, for example. You know, yeah. So to <laughs> give you a quick example, some of those. uh some of those agencies, uh, just kind of crazy. There's, for example, uh, Lava Hot Springs Foundation, and that's in your neck of the woods. Yep. Um, there's that one. There, that's an agency of Idaho. There's Acupuncture Board. There's the Residential Care Facility Administrators Examiners Board. And it's like that is like too long even for an acronym. Just, well, and, and, and I think people got to understand that some people are hearing like, what, are we not going to have any sort of regulation in the private sector? Like, well, wait a minute. You know, these used to be private associations that certified their own trade and their own craft. And that's what people used to look for is, you know, is, is somebody a member of a private association that ensures quality control within that particular trade? It It's only in, in, in like, I think the past really 100 years that we've seen that kind of morph and expand into this ever-growing government regulation of how private industries behave. But, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, historically, these have been private associations that kind of regulated internally their own industry. Yeah, and they should be because they're the ones that are going to have the expertise to actually be able to do it, but not government, never government. So- I want to narrow down on one thing before I move on from the past two years and kind of pandemic policy. So a lot of stuff with the pandemic, you know, has wrapped up, but we still have mandates uh, for the vaccine specifically in the medical field, uh, in the military, and we still have some private corporations that are out there independently imposing vaccine mandates on their employees. Specifically, we have the case, you know, here in Idaho with Micron. There was a lot of people there who lost their jobs or pending losing their jobs. We got still corporations all over the country that are imposing the mandate with or without the federal government actually having a mandate itself now due to the legal challenges. So this is a point of, of contention that I see sometimes even we know within the conservatives slash Republican right. groups. And that is, do you think the state has a role to play in protecting people from mandates that come from the private sector? Uh, yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a really tough question. Uh, in some ways, yes, uh, if, if they, and they do, I believe in protecting the life and the liberty of 
every individual. That is the foundation of what government is supposed to do to protect the life, liberty, and property of other individuals. Now, here we may have a little bit of a, there's always that uh, quandary of the individual, the corporation's property, uh, their their willingness to, to part with their property, as in um, pay paychecks to their employees. Are they willing to do that unless, uh, unless you follow these guidelines that they set forth? Now, uh, one of the problems that I see is that one, there's no liability for, uh, for vaccine companies, which there should be liability. Uh, or liability for the corporation that forces you to get them. Correct. Uh, and there should be liability for the corporation that is requiring that of you. So if you, if they're requiring that of you in order to keep your job and you go ahead and do it and then, uh, and then you have bad reaction or even death in uh, some cases, then that company that is requiring that of you should be held liable, especially since most of these companies are not health industry related and they're requiring it anyway. Uh, they have to, it, it's, it's a form of medical malpractice that we discussed earlier that they're requiring you to get that shot without uh, consulting not only with your doctor, not consulting your uh, family history, uh, your medical history, not consulting uh, any labs or any of that. Uh, and because they're doing that, uh, they are basically legally uh, medical. Mal- it's medical malpractice, and that should be addressed. And it is. And in this case, that would be government's responsibility to ensure that the liberty, uh, the lives, as well of the individual, is protected. And if there is a case such as that where. Uh, the company requires and death is involved uh, because of the the requirement, then yeah, the company should be held liable for that. But uh, government tends to pick and choose who's going to win and who's not. And we need to put a stop to that. So generally speaking, companies understand that they're, they will be held liable. Then they might change their position. So you'd be in favor of legislation that either ensures that, uh, these companies are held liable for any injuries or deaths uh, in the worst case scenario from an adverse reaction to a vaccine. Or would you also be in favor of things like we have, for example, there were policies that are put in place in Florida, you know, legislation that was passed and put in place by Governor DeSantis that just basically prohibited um, private companies from imposing vaccine mandates as a condition of employment. Well, I, and I would be for either one because it actually covers both bases. Um, in that, uh, requiring that uh, they can't, you know, making sure that they can't do that is actually one of the few proactive ways that government can actually prevent uh, the trampling of individual liberties uh, in that. Uh, and, and you because know. It, it, because it is simply saying you're not a medical provider, therefore you don't have any authority or right to do that to your fellow employees. Well, uh, even with your medical case, provider, you can still tell your doctor no. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can, and you certainly can. Uh, yeah. You can go to a, get a second opinion with a doctor or a third opinion, and so on, until you even find a doctor that uh, completely agrees with you. Now, uh, and I want to kind of shift off of you know the specific pandemic stuff, but it's going to be kind of linked to the, with this question we just asked. So something that has become apparent, at least to me, and I think a lot of people over the course of the pandemic and just over the past few years, is that something that we're seeing in the United States now, and there are some parallels with you know earlier points in history, um, not so much with the early founding period, though there are still some, and that is that we are seeing more and more a collusion between large corporations, you know, you know, these, these huge multinational companies or even just American companies or just large entities and the government. And a lot of times now it seems like the government, instead of directly enforcing what it wants to have done, it's using large corporations as an, an additional line of effort or an intermediary, or they're basically doing it through the private sector. And the vaccine mandate is a great example of that, where even before there was any official government rule, the OSHA rule hadn't even been written yet, as far as we knew, or even put into effect. And then large companies started to enforce it within their within the corporate structure. So I just kind of want to hear what what your thoughts are. If you think that that is an issue, what state policy should be used? Um, I'm going to throw another couple of concepts here. We'll come on and aim this stuff as we as you answer this. If you're familiar at all with the ESG score system and the emerging social credit system, have you heard about those issues at all? Uh, yes, I have. I'm not uh, completely familiar with uh, some of those, like the ESG scores and how they work. I don't. I know enough to know that. Uh, but but do you see? Do you see this as being a problem? I'm I'm sorry to say that. Do again. you see this collusion between big business and big government being an issue, or is it? Or because I've heard a lot of Republicans just say, "Oh, yeah. no, the private sector gets to do whatever it wants." Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but the, the part of the reason why they are doing it is because they are colluding with government and uh, especially a, a corrupt government uh, that we have at the federal level right now, especially. Um, but cronyism happens, and which is another way of saying colluding with uh, you know government and businesses colluding with each other. Uh, I don't uh, agree with any of that. There, there should not be any whatsoever uh, collusion between uh, government and uh, and private businesses. Government uh, supporting one business over another. I'll give you a quick example um, of a little bit of that in my neck of the woods. Uh, many people know uh, that uh, Facebook has come to CUNA, um, and we can argue one way or the other with that. But one of the big problems that I see with that is for the next five years, we don't get to collect property taxes from them. If, and government should never be playing any kind of favorites like that. Uh, there should be, uh, if we're going to wow. be spending for, for the privilege using of importing. taxes. <laughs> wow. You said five years? Yeah, for five years. So no property tax now, for five years for the privilege of having Facebook come to your county. Yeah. Uh, they So they get that uh, free 
taxes uh, with regards to property tax for five years. Uh, what about the other businesses that are around? Uh, they don't get that. And maybe they did get it. Maybe they didn't get it in the past. It really doesn't matter. The, the, the whole point of our system is everybody, every individual is supposed to be treated equally. So if we are going to be uh, fair, you cannot you cannot be giving a tax incentive. Uh, you get no taxes for the next five years and no individual citizen ever gets that uh, as you know, it has to be equal and businesses, they all have to be equal in that sense. So that is one of the problems. Now, uh, granted, uh, and a lot of people don't know it, that they're, they are paying for a lot of infrastructure out of their own pocket that taxpayers would normally be paying for, such as uh, improvement in roads, improvement in the sewer system. Uh, they're going to build a, a fire station out there, which in CUNA's case, they desperately, desperately need. We're 17, 19,000 people and have one fire station. Uh, so, you know, there there is good and bad to both of it, and that is not coming out of taxpayers' pocket in the case of fire stations and sewer improvements. That is being paid up front by the company. So, in a sense, they're offsetting some of that, but that does not take away from the principle that everybody and all businesses should be treated equal, and there should be no collusion whatsoever between government and and uh, businesses, uh, except simply to be to, for government to act as referee when there's an infringement on liberties of individuals uh, versus a company, uh, and so on. But uh, yeah, it's uh, th there shouldn't be any, and with and when there is, that's when you get government using uh, and basically forcing or incentivizing businesses to do to work on the behest of government. Uh, so that government doesn't look like the bad guy, so to speak, and it's more like the the individual companies. But in real in reality, it's both of them. So when we're talking about you know private business here, and specifically companies like Facebook. So you know we saw you know the Zuckerbucks you know quote unquote you know securing the election during the last cycle yeah. and all those types of things. And you, sometimes you have like really in-depth interference by private sector companies and, and political process. But I, I want to kind of talk about economic growth and then how that happens. Like you give us an example of, you know, Facebook being lured by tax incentives and things like that to come to, to Kuna County. What I, I understand, yes, we should treat businesses and individuals equally. At the same time, not all corporations are created equally. And it seems to me that we need to start taking a hard look at, in places like Idaho specifically, uh, when we're offering any incentives of any type to businesses, taking a look at, does that business bring more than just jobs, infrastructure, raw economic numbers, but is that business actually good for the culture and the values and the communities that they're going to come to? Like personally, I'll throw you my idea out here and I want to see what you think. I don't really want any more Silicon Valley stuff coming to Idaho uh, because they tend to bring their company culture with them. They tend to dominate the politics of the areas where they go and they bring a lot of implants and a lot of them are people who, let's just be blunt about it, aren't going to vote consistent with you know the average conservative Idahoan 
And I think we've seen that in places like Colorado and other places where they imported a bunch of businesses that are fleeing California and they just tend to terraform the places they go to. Should that be a factor that we consider when we're looking at what companies to bring to our state? Well, as far as bringing them to the state, yeah, when you get the government in, involved in uh, incentivizing or that, or, you know, and it doesn't matter what the various reasons are, government should not be involved with making those decisions. Uh, however, you know, some of the, you know, a lot of this is going to be uh, more on the local level in the, in the case with uh, Facebook, uh, at the local level, uh, I do know that uh, they did come and were working on getting the property and so on under a different name so that nobody would know that it's actually Facebook. So uh, I think that that's a little bit of a problem there with that. I mean, it should be upfront. And, and part of that is because they uh, understood, understand the system that n not only the federal government has but the state of idaho has and that they could possibly get in order to uh, bring in a, a large business that's going to bring in a, in a lot of money uh, and they know that they've got a lot of money to spend they know that they can get that special deal uh, of a tax break for five years if nobody knows about it but it's facebook in this case so that is the a lot of the problems stem from government government incentivizing government uh, playing favorites here and there uh if government is not doing that uh then you i think we would see a lot of these social problems with even within businesses start to go away uh another issue is the morality of the people themselves uh, I, Unfortunately, uh, we see, you know, we will complain about a lot of times about other people's representatives, whether it's in Congress or whether it's uh, even in here in Idaho or wherever, we'll complain about other people's representatives and those people in the, that are being represented by that individual uh, very much may agree with what that individual is doing and continue to uh, support those individuals. I mean, how many times do we see Pelosi, for example, continue to get reelected? Yes, there was, there's a lot of money involved with that, and that plays a huge factor. But setting no, but that to aside, your point, they continue they... to vote for it. And, and so, you know, the people, uh, if they really understood how much power they actually have, uh, with their representatives and understand who those representatives are and how they are doing it and paying uh, attention to it uh, as much as we all should, uh, we wouldn't have as many of those problems, I believe. No, I mean, yeah, to a certain extent, people get the government that is, they deserve because it's the government they voted for. So I, I move on to a couple of points here. I'm looking at your website here and just want to kind of explore a couple points on your platform. So you mentioned that you have worked or as an elected official, you're part of Idaho's education system before. And yet on here, and this is, I applaud you for this. You're saying you want 100% choice for parents. So Correct. kind of what brought, what, what does that mean to you? What does school choice mean to you? And then even with your education background, what kind of brought you to that conclusion? 
Well, that's actually uh, pretty simple. Uh, first, uh, as as I uh, spent time on the school district board and watching how funds were being used, uh, not being used wisely, not even caring about uh, uh, about how they were being used because they could always go to the voters to get more funds, uh, that sort of thing. It's just uh, parents, uh, children are parents' responsibility. I, I believe that firmly that uh, it should be always the choice of the parents. And uh, though uh, a lot of government and even we have uh, uh, Supreme Court rulings that uh, government funds cannot be used to support, uh, you know, churches, that sort of thing, despite the fact that uh, Thomas Jefferson, well known for having used government funds to support uh, churches, for example. Uh, but even setting that aside, uh, the simple fact is that parents should have a hundred percent choice in how and where their par- their children are to be educated. And if that means in, if that means going to a private school, if that means going to a church run school, the money that government is going to be using, if we're going to continue to spend money on education, and it should be for the education of children, not supporting systems, but supporting those children, uh, then however, whichever direction that the parents decide to uh, choose uh, for their child is the best choice for that child. Uh, and parents should be free to be able to do that without having to worry about coming up with more money out of their own pockets if they decide to go private school or a church-run school, because they are, so they're basically paying double for education because they pay it out of their taxes, and then they pay it again out of their own pocket, and they shouldn't have to do that. They should be able to choose wherever, uh, however they want to educate their children. And uh, as far as accountable education, we are way lacking in accountability uh, in education. And a lot of times these uh, schools do not focus on what is truly important. As an example, when I was at the Kuno School District, um, I over and over uh, bringing up the fact that we're missing or we're behind on uh, curriculum. Uh, As an example, uh, the government um, book that or the, that they were using textbook uh, still had uh, that was well it was dated the year 2000 so uh, and this so I was on the board in 2013 uh, to begin with and 2013 and it still did not show even George W. Bush as the president and that's you know, that's a little bit behind the times. That's thir- I was 13 years behind the times when CUNA finally got around to to wanting to uh, update their curriculum. They ran a levy, and part of it was to update curriculum. Well, I had been saying that for years. There's ways that they could have uh, cut to get the most important required education uh, that was you know, that is required by the state even. Um, extracurricular is not, as an example, is not an absolute necessary uh, item if, and especially if, our basic curriculum, history and science and math and those sorts of, those 
curriculum that are actually educational for children are not even being covered. Uh, so, you know, driver's ed is another example that is not absolutely required, but our education of our children is. And that accountability tends to go out the door and people tend to ignore it, uh, especially in, in education. They don't, they want to well-rounded, they want to cover everything all the time, including, uh, you know, feeding our kids, including making sure that they have all the proper exercise and, and everything, but they don't, sometimes they leave off of the curriculum that they are supposed to be doing. And that is, uh, that is a serious problem. And parents should be able to look at that and go, yeah, I don't care for that. I want to want them proper, my child properly educated and move them to whichever school they choose, whether it's outside of their district, whether it's in a parochial, uh, in a private school, whether it's in a, in a church funded school and the money should follow, follow the child. Now, Michael, let's be careful. If you have an old textbook and then you update it, that means you just get the latest version of Marxism. Yes, there is, and there is <laughs> there is that the, there is that the problem too. Uh, um, no, but I get your point though. Like, yeah, so I think that this is something that you know our listeners are interested in because this always comes up with school choice. So accountability. So first off, I think it is funny, like you pointed out, that we assume that just because the government's running this school, the money's being used correctly. It's like, well, wait a minute. I, I, I've been in the army for 19 years. I know the government doesn't use its money <laughs> all yeah. effectively all the time. Just because the government's spinning it doesn't mean it's being spent well. Matter of fact, a lot of times it's the opposite. But, that is correct. Uh, uh, and that's the case in almost every yeah, – in every government there is – Yeah, so uh, there's pork. fraud, waste, and abuse in every bureaucracy. So let, just because the yep. government's spinning it, let's not just – let's say, yeah, it's accountable spending. Yeah, that's, that's far-fetched in a lot of places. But the question does get asked, so, okay, if the money follows the child, and these are a concern a lot of people have, does that mean strings are going to follow that money? And now that I'm paying for my private tuition to my church's school, does that mean now that either the local school board or the Idaho Board of Education is now going to get its tentacles into every single private education institution? <laughs> That is a very good question, and that uh, you know, your your the state of Idaho uh, a lot of well, times let me, let me narrow it down the, for the you. Legislators because... will complain about the yeah. strings attached from federal government. There should never be any strings attached with regards to that. Uh, it should be, I mean, there should be. They can look at if they really want to to uh, get at it. They can looking at strings uh, and certain requirements uh, it has they they the problem here with with that is that um, I think that the marketplace would actually uh, cover for that um, if we allow if we allow the competition against government schools if we allow competition everywhere uh, without those uh, strings, then it is going to go the direction that the parents want. Uh, so, yeah, there would not be any strings attached. Um, and if it seemed like, you know, because it tends to happen with the government when 
uh, and you can look at it with our healthcare, how uh, the cost of healthcare, uh, not only if you're paying out of pocket, but health insurance, when you get government involved, the private entities look at it and go, oh, look at that. Uh, we got government, we got government money, and they will start to jack up prices uh, simply because they believe that the, that there's uh, there's a bottomless pocket that they can put their hands into and get the money. And that is one of the, that is a problem with that. And that is very much understood. Uh, but uh, marketplace, uh, I think could work all of that out. And it, yeah, but, but Michael, just, just pushes just so, that direction. Go ahead. Just so I got you. I, I think our, I think our listeners understand. So I'll make sure though. Uh, I think you made a great point though. If no strings follow the money, then what you're going to see is true competition, true innovation. And I think that I don't want to put words in your mouth, but just hearing some other people talk about this issue, when we say that the government needs to regulate and control the education to ensure that it has quality, if you have choice and parents get to choose where to put their children, then, I mean, parents will pick the best option they can find. And I think that to, to assume otherwise that somehow parents are going to find substandard education, you know, is operating on the assumption that the state loves your children more than you do. I mean, does that? Yeah. The, yeah. And that is, that is a typical uh, problem that uh, a lot of people have is they want to, uh, they just can't give up that control and it is not, it is not theirs to control. I mean, really parents are already paying for education and they should be allowed to choose, uh, which way they, uh, how they want their child to be, uh, to be educated, whether it, you know, maybe they don't have the same ideals and beliefs of Christians, but, you know, government never has a problem taxing Christians. Uh, and yet they won't True. allow the <laughs> money to be sent to Christian schools. Uh, that is asinine. If you ask me, uh, parents, uh, in 99% of all cases, will do what they think is best for their child. And children, a lot of times, will have a say in it. They don't care for this, or they don't care for this subject or that one, or they're not as interested, and maybe they even can't do uh, physical things. Perfect example, uh, my kids, two of my kids are legally blind, and they have been since they were uh, children. I mean, they can still see, but it's their legal legally blind and have difficult time seeing they were still required to do certain things and in, in uh, pe for example it does them no good because they can't in most everything that they were required to do they can't and so they did a lot of sitting uh just not really so just another example of one on. size fits all government solution failed again correct and that is a problem so parents would be able to make those decisions uh for their children, but uh, in a one-size-fits-all, like you said, it doesn't work. Well, we're getting close to the end of the interview here, so I want to ask you about one more point on your platform, talk about your book a little bit, and then kind of close out with any final thoughts that you have. So you have listed here that one of your goals of your um, candidacy here or what you're running on is you want to protect Idaho's sovereignty against federal intrusion. So I guess kind of first, just to define terms, uh, what do you think is state sovereignty and how is it being violated by the federal government and how do you want to protect it? Just anywhere around that. Good question. 
Um, so to protect Idaho's sovereignty, we need to end any and all government uh, federal dollars being spent um, from the federal government. Uh, Idaho doesn't need it. Uh, and one of those things that we could be doing, and according to the Constitution that Congress is actually required to do, is to dispose of federal lands. It is in the Constitution that they are required to dispose of federal lands. And what that means, and I write about this, uh, about that in my uh, book, that uh, they to dispose of the lands means that they are to either uh, give it away, and that would be to either private entities or to the state of Idaho, or they are to sell it. One of the one of the two, but they are not to hold on to it. And the only thing that they are supposed to hold on to is what is needed for their uh, required federal services um, that are also under the Constitution, such as uh, you know military bases, uh, ports, things like that that are required. And we could still even argue on the military bases. Uh, but anything that they are required to. So uh, that is the only land that the federal government should be owning. And in the case of Idaho, 60-something percent, pushing two-thirds, is way too much. And that could go a long ways for the state of Idaho in weaning ourselves off of federal dollars. But even setting uh, that aside, that that's probably never going to happen, uh, you know, that money is debt. And one of the problems with spending debt money, federal money, is that it also violates our own constitution in that we are required to balance our budget. And if we're spending debt money, our budget isn't, balanced, isn't balanced. We are spending more money than is being taken in. Uh, through federal funds. And of course, there's always strings attached with that. And that is always a problem. But uh, we need to, we could survive on our own without those federal funds, uh, especially if we started requiring and pushing the federal government to return our lands like they are required under the Constitution uh, to do. But nevertheless, uh, even if we aren't able to do that, the, the use of federal funds um, is a burden, not just on Idaho, but it's a burden on all U.S. citizens. Um, yeah, they're going to spend the money anyway, but uh, we don't have to be a part of that. And another problem with uh, federal intrusion in Idaho sovereignty is one simple thing, and I talk about it a little bit in my book, is that the Constitution provides uh, the Supreme Court with certain jurisdictions. And one of those is not, they do not have any jurisdiction between Idaho and its citizens. They have jurisdiction between citizens of two different states, jurisdiction between a citizen and a different state, uh, between the two states and, and of course, foreign uh, entities, but if you read the Article 3, it does not grant them any authority, and the same thing can be said for Congress, too, because it is intrastate, not interstate. They have authority with interstate commerce, but not intrastate commerce. So what happens in Idaho, I hate to use that 
that uh, vernacular, uh, what happens in Idaho stays in Idaho. And so whenever, a, whenever the federal government, whether it's a court decision or uh, laws or anything that intrude on the authority of the state of Idaho, the rights of individual citizens in the state of Idaho, uh, we are giving up our sovereignty when we uh, recognize by going to court um, that the federal government has authority over certain things. And I give the example of of Roe v. Wade. Yes, that's a huge one. But Roe v. Wade was, Roe was a Texas citizen. And so the, the Texas law uh, prohibited abortion and it was Texas Supreme Court that should have the highest authority and federal government should not have any of that whatsoever. We have in our own constitution, Idaho, that marriage is between a man and a woman, and the federal government said no. But yet that's in our constitution that is was required by the constitution to be put in place, that we're to have a republic, we're, we're to have our own constitutions, and the federal government is even ignoring our own constitution. Uh, and we should ignore the federal government when they are intruding on the authority of Idaho. Okay, there's a lot of stuff there, and I, <laughs> yes. I, I applaud you for thinking that in depth on this topic. A lot of people talk about protecting state sovereignty, and it's usually just a buzzword. It's bumper sticker political analysis. So thank you for having that so well thought out. I just want to make sure for our listeners, though, they, they understand this, I want to make sure I'm clear because I, I think you brought some really great points there. So right now we're basically operating under like the most extreme version of judicial supremacy imaginable, where as you pointed out, you know, the ruling of the Supreme Court gets to override a state constitution, state law, the expressed written words in the constitution, uh-huh. every way they could possibly be interpreted in light inter- interpreted in light of the originalist interpretation, you know, it doesn't matter what Jefferson, Madison, or Washington said, uh, it matters what, you know, nine robed justices in the current day say, even if it defies all their previous precedent. Uh, That's kind of where we're at. So if I hear you correctly, if we're talking about a sphere of government authority that is expressly left to the states, and the Supreme Court tries to intrude on that subject, whether it's the definition of marriage, whether it's the the bill that's banning men from, from girls' sports in Idaho that's being challenged right now, whatever this sphere of law is, that if the federal government rules against us, and even at the Supreme Court, that the state should defy that and continue on anyway and ignore it because it's completely outside of their jurisdiction. That is correct. Okay. Um, th- and if we want to go just even a step farther, mentioning mentioning about the judicial system, we even have that problem in Idaho. Uh, and we can go back. I mean, we shouldn't. If the Constitution had been followed by Idaho's Supreme Court, we wouldn't be dealing with the problem of grocery sales tax because the Constitution clearly defines, and they even admitted in their argument that uh, the veto on the grocery sales tax a few years ago was done on day 11, which 
day 10 was the deadline, but they allowed it to uh, to go the veto to stand anyway. So it's not just a problem in our federal system of judicial system, but it is also a problem in Idaho's judicial system of, of judges ignoring the Constitution as it is very clearly written and sometimes ignoring law. No, that's 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 a great point. And uh, you know what? We're we're almost at an hour. We could probably talk much longer. I will have to have <laughs> yes. you back. we'll have to have you back on the show. But I want to kind of end here before I ask for your final thoughts. Uh, circling back to where you started out, you know, you mentioned your book and how this kind of exploration of the American founding, you know, kind of triggered inside you this desire to run for office. So, you know, being a student of the founding yourself and someone who's familiar with that time period and studying American history, I just want to kind of ask you, what do you think is the premise of the American Revolution? I'm sorry, is the premise of the American Revolution? What's the what's the what's the central idea of the American Revolution? Oh, that was uh, so. And the, one of the reasons why I wanted to get into education to begin with, uh, thus the secondary education emphasis in my uh, bachelor's degree, was that I recognized that it was not being taught. And uh, as an example, when we say, "Why did we separate ourselves from England?" and uh, the typical answer is taxation without representation, and uh, that is it. But yet, if we look at the Declaration of Independence, that is only one of 27 charges that we laid against the king. One and the most I minor, actually, one of the most one of the minor ones. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the most minor ones. I mean, there were huge ones of of what I had mentioned earlier, that he's erected a multitude of offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our citizens, eat out their substance. There was jury trials. There was the forced, you could look at it this way, there was the mandate of that required uh, U.S. citizens, well, they weren't U.S. citizens, but it required Americans to join the British military, navy, or army, and forcing them to fight against their brethren. I mean, there was a lot of different things, 27 different charges, and people don't really know what those charges were, why we separated ourselves from it. They know maybe one or two, but not many more than that. And so, and that's what I went through with my book, is is that. And also in my book, because as a, you know, training as a teacher, and some of it's good, a lot of it's good, is that especially with history, you have to make it applicable. So then also, as I go through each of the charges, I show how government in a lot of cases is doing things exactly the same as King George was then. Uh, not saying, definitely not saying we need a, another revolution, especially a violent one, but we need because we have much better means to fix the problems with nonviolent means, uh, like myself running for state legislature uh, to help fix some of those problems. And we have those means that they did not have then. Uh, and so we need to not only uh, correct that education and help people understand that that foundation which is really everything. If we don't have a foundation, 
the house will crumble. And so we have to get back to uh, repairing and, and making that foundation stand. And education is a very important part of that. But uh, we have to we have to be involved with government in order to uh, make that happen and in order to roll back government, uh, which is vitally important. Well, Michael, thank you for your time and uh, thank you for your expertise. Like I said, we'll have to have you back on definitely again. Uh, before we close out, I just want our listeners to understand kind of what the lay of the land is for your race. So you're running as a Republican. Do you have a primary challenger at this time? I actually have uh, two at this point, okay. um, primary challengers. I don't know much about uh, one of them. Uh, other one I know is uh, going to be tend to be establishment. I'm pretty sure both of them will be uh, simply because I do have some name recognition uh, there. And in fact, but, I know but need, one of them. Are either uh, of these a current incumbent? Uh, no. So uh, I am in, in running for an open seat. Okay. It's the only open seat uh, in that district. All right. And is there anything else you want to bring up that didn't come up during the interview? Anything you want to highlight before we close out? No, I think we, well, we covered a lot of ground. We did cover a lot of course, There's always plenty more to, yep. plenty more to cover, but uh, people well, just need to know that Idahoans Liberty is my priority and it is about the people. It is not about me. It is not about my fellow legislators. It is about the people. And that's what I'm going to be running for and running to do is to ensure that Idahoans liberty and their property are safeguarded and as just, well as their lives. And just so everybody listening knows, where should they go if they want to learn more about your campaign and if they want to make a contribution? They can go to lawforidaho.com. That is my website. Um, I'm also on Facebook at uh, Michael Law. And uh, and then uh, I'm going to give out my phone number. They can they can call me two zero eight seven six one seven two nine zero or my uh, my email address is p r o n r a l a w at gmail dot com. Wow! Now that is a risky move right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not worried about it. Uh, I want to hear from the people. No, I'm, 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 I'm just, I'm just kidding. No, I, I hope you get a lot of <laughs> phone calls and emails, and uh, people take interest in your campaign. So, again, thank you for your time and coming on the program. Thank you, David. And to the rest of our listeners out there, thank you for listening to Idaho Speaks. We still have a long road ahead of us, but we're getting closer to the primaries. A lot of candidates to talk to, a lot of material to cover, and thank you for your time and listening to Idaho Speaks. We've reached the end of the episode, but not the end of the issue. Please share this episode with your friends and family. If you have questions or would like to share your own issues and ideas, visit www.idahospeaks.com and click Share an Issue. Your state, your voice, Idaho Speaks.